The taxes were high, the labor was intense, and what they were building was immense. Everyone was going to be drawn to the city where kings would become gods and where humanity would unite around the greatness of who they are. They had one language. They were of one mind. They were one superpower. Humanity would rule the world and they would crush anything that got in its way. Sounds like a similar story of humanity in many ages. Now, you would have thought, though, at this particular time, that people would have learned their lesson with the great flood. They would have learned the lesson of what the consequences of sin and rebelling against God would do to humanity. But instead, they decided to ignore God's warning to them, and what the people thought was going to be a big monument to their greatness God came along and kicked over like a kid does an anthill. We read of God speaking and God saying, come let us go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. And after this, the people scattered and left the city to rot. Now many of you probably recognize this story as the story of the Tower of Babel. It's in Genesis chapter 11, and it's another story of humanity's continual desire to be their own masters. But it also is a story of the futility of humanity trying to be their own masters. We can look, we can tour, we can dig and find the ruins of so many great attempts of humanity trying to be their own master for it only to all become ruins. In fact, the Old Testament tells the story of humanity's failure before God again and again. In many ways, the Old Testament is quite repetitive. If you read the Old Testament prophets, uh, you will find that their message is very repetitive. God creates, and in the Garden of Eden, everything's perfect, but it ends in expulsion because of human sin. The growth of humanity ends up leading to a flood. Civilizations lead to division and warfare and the confusion of languages. Even when God calls a special people through Abraham and makes a special promise with these people, promising them a monarchy, promising them land and descendants and a tabernacle, tabernacle where, where he will dwell with them always in their midst so they could tell the rest of the world about him, it all falls apart. Humanity is simply unable to stay true to God even when God tabernacles with them as he did in the Old Testament. The Davidic monarchy crumbles. The promised land is taken. The descendants are scattered into oblivion and exile. The temple is destroyed and the glory of the Lord departs. And it's all due to the contamination of human sin. It's a depressing story. It's the story of the Old Testament. One 
long exit out of Eden. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, each one and every one unable to keep covenant with God or to keep the people faithful to God. The prophet Isaiah even observed all of us, and he includes himself in that all of us, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own way. And yet, even in their straying, God gave them the law. But, we read in Scripture, it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. And God gives them the sacrificial system. And yet we read in Scripture, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so God gives them festivals and celebrations and ceremonies to remember him. And yet God says, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. It's the Old Testament story. One long, depressing, sad story of forgetfulness, sinfulness, and rebellion against God. And yet, we're here today proclaiming something called the gospel, which means good news. So how is there good news in the midst of all of this bad news? Well, it already begins to be hinted at in the Old Testament story. There in the Old Testament story, we find that God, despite his people, never gives up on his people and never gives up on his creation. It's a God who, even after the flood brings a new world following the flood. It's a God who brings people out of slavery. It's a God who brings people out of exile. It's a God who brings life out of death. And already we start to see this in the Old Testament. Another prophet by the name of Ezekiel said, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I always think that that must have been the weirdest assignment. God saying, Steph, I want you to go to the graveyard and I want you to preach to dead bones. And as Ezekiel does this and says, dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. And you will come to life. We start seeing in the Old Testament already the hints of a new creation. Speaking to the very bones and saying, this is not the end. God's going to bring life even out of death. And so this is the story of the Old Testament as well. It's not only the story of humanity's failure, but it's also the story of God's restoration of his creation. God's story of rescuing us so that we can know God and no longer desire the false gods 
that so temptingly call us. God says to his people, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Again, the prophet Ezekiel is prophesying something that we are here today celebrating. That God promised that he would put a new spirit in us. A spirit that would help us stay faithful to him. And so as the story continues, God came to us in Jesus. And we now begin to move from Old Testament into the New Testament. In Jesus, God became Adam. God became human. In Jesus, God became Israel. And Jesus perfectly lived Israel's mission. This is the dominant message of the New Testament. That's why the Old Testament is still so important. We can't just throw it away. The message of the New Testament is constantly showing us how Jesus fulfilled the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus became the Davidic king. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. Jesus became the high priest. Jesus became the temple. With Jesus, the glory of the Lord once again dwells with his people. Jesus is the light in Zion, calling all people to her and to acknowledge God as their true Lord. Jesus restores and heals the land. Jesus fulfills the law. The very gospels are even set up and organized in such a way that parallel Israel's lifespan, which they failed in, to show Jesus following that same lifespan, but succeeding in. Jesus' baptism reenacts Israel's through the Red Sea. Followed by Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, just as Israel, after they went through the Red Sea, went 40 years in the desert. To Jesus coming out of the wilderness and Then when he came out of the wilderness and started going around, he then started casting out demons and healing people. It's now Jesus coming and conquering the promised land. Just as when Israel, after their 40 years in the desert, now through Joshua, comes into the promised land and also conquers those forces against evil. Jesus Transfigured with Moses and Elijah, fulfill and show the fulfillment of Jesus, fulfilling law and prophets. Jesus is the serpent that Moses raised up on the staff as he walked through the land when people were sinning against God and they were being bitten by serpents. And Moses creates a staff and walks through and says, Look upon this staff with a snake on it, and you will believe. We see in the New Testament that that was a foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus is the manna that fell from heaven, John tells us. Jesus dying on Passover to reenact the lamb's blood on the door frames during Exodus to protect the people from the angel of death. Jesus becomes the true Passover lamb. And on and on it goes. We could do a year-long series 
just showing how Jesus fulfills the mission of Israel. Jesus becomes the true human one, the true Israelite, the one to whom all people look to find God. Jesus is the incarnation of Israel's mission. This is why Matthew begins his gospel over and over with saying, and this happened to fulfill, and then showed something in the Old Testament. And this happened to fulfill, and then it shows something in the Old Testament. It's why Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished, not it is partially accomplished. It is finished. It was a victory. And yet, in Jesus' it is finished, which meant that everything in the Old Covenant was fulfilled, it didn't mean that things were not still going to be made new. It is finished. My mission is accomplished. And yet now that the mission's accomplished, all things are being made new. So 50 days after Passover, this is a brief summary of the Old Testament story, and then Jesus and him fulfilling it. And then we talked just the other week of Jesus after fulfilling it, dying, rising, ascending into heaven. And now, just as Jesus promised, as all things are being made new, Jesus said, I will send my Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that I promised way back in the Old Testament, that new spirit that's going to come in you and give you a right heart, now here is the fulfillment of this promise, and through the Holy Spirit, all things are going to start being made new. And so 50 days after Passover, the time when the Jews remember the Exodus, the Passover was the time they remember the Exodus, 50 days after that, they had Pentecost. Pentecost was a time for the Jews to mark the end of the wheat harvest. So it was a time of gathering in the harvest. Very appropriate time for the Holy Spirit to come. Because it's once again God using the festivals and the celebrations of the people symbolically to say, just as you physically gather in the harvest at this time, now the true harvest of people is beginning through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Just as you used to fish for fish, now you're going to fish for people. The harvest is ready. It's time to throw the nets. It's time to harvest the land. That's what Pentecost is all about. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of gathering, a time of abundance, a time of reaping. God didn't just fulfill the Old Testament with Jesus. He inaugurated a new age, the age that we're in, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is why it makes no sense for Christians to ever be depressed, because we're in the age of Pentecost. We're in the age of the Holy Spirit. We're in the age of abundance, gathering, reaping, because we're in an age where we've been filled by the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus went to the cross, he promised that his going away would be followed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you an advocate. And this advocate, the Holy Spirit, will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. 
The Holy Spirit came on the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. And so we are in an age of celebration, gathering, abundance, reaping. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And the birth of the church is the extension of God's Israel to the Gentiles. God never had a plan for two people, Jews and Gentiles. He always and only had a plan for one people. And all that has happened in Jesus is that Israel, and this is, we're going to get into this in the rest of the book of Acts, this is often what was the scandal for Israel, is that Israel has now been opened to the Gentiles. God's one family has now opened its door through what Jesus has done so that now the Gentiles have been grafted into Israel as well. And so today we celebrate the birth of the church or the birth of Israel opening its doors. God's Israel opening its doors to Jews and Gentiles as one family under God. It's Pentecost Sunday. This is what happened on that first Pentecost. I'm going to ask Leona to come forward and read the passage of Scripture. And while she does... You can turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began seeking, speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we are all here, these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. Then, Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, describes well what happened when he says, It is the unanimous conviction of the New Testament authors that Jesus inaugurated the last days or the Messianic age. And that the final proof of this was the outpouring of the Spirit since this was the Old Testament promise of promises for the end times. This being so, we must be careful not to re-quote Joel's prophecy as if we are still awaiting its fulfillment or even as if its fulfillment has only been partially, and we await some future incomplete fulfillment. For this is not how Peter understood or applied the text. The whole messianic era, which stretches between the two comings of Christ, his ascension and when he's going to come back again, is the age of the Spirit, the age that we live in today, in which his ministry is one of abundance. One of the things that's so important, and this is why a liberal arts education really came out of trying to teach people how to read their Bible um, and understanding how to read literature. One of the things that's so important to understand in reading literature, reading prophecy, reading poetry, reading the different genres of literature and scripture is how scripture works. So, for instance, in the Joel passage, which trips some people up, it says things like that when this is going to happen, the sun is going to be blackened, and the sky is going to have all these different things happen. And people say, well, that didn't happen in this time of Acts. And so, we're still waiting for its fulfillment. But that's never how the prophets spoke in the words that they used. In the Old Testament, whenever you have the end of an age... So, for instance, when Israel was captured and they went into exile from the Babylonians, there it refers to the sun turning dark and the sky turning black and all of that. Those are symbolic pictures of the end of an age. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. These signs in the sky as a symbol of the end of one age and the birth of another age. And so what's happening in Joel is being fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this symbolic language is being used to say an age has ended. And we're now in a new age. The language is used like this all the time, even in the children's video when it talked about it was like fire. The Holy Spirit came like a dove, not literally. C.S. Lewis has a funny line when he says, I don't understand why some people say that they don't believe in the devil with his hooves. And Lewis says that, well, why do we believe that the devil has actual hooves? We Christians don't believe that devil has hooves any more than that we believe the Holy Spirit could lay an egg. And what Lewis was talking about there is we don't believe the Holy Spirit is a literal dove that can lay eggs. Neither do we believe that the devil has hooves. And sometimes we do a disservice. We belittle the message of God 
by not understanding poetry, not understanding the language, and not understanding what it's symbolizing, what it's speaking to, which is usually grander. It's usually us stretching for language to describe things that are indescribable. And so what's happening here is Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. Not partially fulfilled, but fully fulfilled. An end of an age has taken place. A new age has been birthed. We're in the age of the Spirit. And during that age, the Scripture says that harvest is ripe. The gospel is preached and people are surrendering to Christ. That day when it was first preached, 3,000 were saved that one day. And this has been going on as a daily occurrence. Uh, Sometimes we just need to look beyond our circles to see that it is still a daily occurrence. Because it seems that certain societies and certain times of history ebb and flow by the softness or the hardness of people's hearts. And so even though maybe here in the West things might be slowing down and people seem to be a little bit harder in their responsiveness to Christ. There are places like Latin America and Africa and Asia today where 3,000 people being saved every day is still a daily occurrence today. And the church is still exploding with the speed So fast uh, that many times, and John Stott was a big part of this ministry, I've tried to support it as well, both financially and myself as a teacher, that many times the church is exploding around the world today so fast that they don't have enough time to train pastors and teachers. And so there's a great need to, to train people and to give them resources and books and to call people, some of our own young people, to think about ministry because there's a great need for pastors and teachers Sometimes because there is such a lack, churches can go astray very quickly, even as I showed you today in misinterpretations of Scripture, because people trying to interpret it with lack of education, lack of the skills and the tools, and churches can go in some bad directions. So there's a great need for teachers, because the church today in the age of the Spirit is exploding, and God uses human agents. Though it's a work of the Holy Spirit, God still calls and empowers and enables the church to reach out by equipping people, giving them gifts. The Holy Spirit gives talents. God begins and God sustains and God finishes the work, but in his unique sovereignty, he does it through people. People with the gift of music and with the gift of hospitality and with the gift of administration and the gift of teaching... We're not robotic recipients of, the God, of God's work. We are to come alongside of what he's doing. We are called to repent. We are called by God, and we've been enabled by God to submit rather than resist his grace. We are God's workmanship, that God's creating in us good works to bless other people. Nothing will be accomplished in bringing people to Jesus simply by our own ingenuity and strategies and rhetoric. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But in the mystery, God calls us to use strategies and rhetoric and ingenuity. He's given us minds. He's given us creativity. And he's called us to use it to go and tell other people about Jesus. 
But in the midst of all of it, we need to always remember who ultimately does the saving. When the disciples began to speak the gospel in other language, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. But guess what? They still had to open their mouth. Uh, It would have been interesting if one of them would have tried to resist it. I don't know what would have happened. But God gave them the power to speak in other languages, but they still had to do it. It's the work of God, but he works with us as we submit. And since Pentecost, not only has the harvest been ripe and there's this great abundance, but Pentecost is the story for all people to join God's people. In Acts 2, the tongues that were given were the supernatural ability to speak in other languages. And I wish when I was in high school, God would have given me the gift of French instead of having me have to learn it the hard way. But these people were given the supernatural ability to speak in other languages. I don't know if they kept that ability for the rest of their life or if they just had it for this moment. But it is an obvious ability in this moment to speak another language. Because what we read is that the crowd was bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They even said, we hear them speaking languages of the lands where we are born. Verse 11, we hear all these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And then as Leona read the passage of scripture, there's at least 14 different people groups represented here that have come to gather for the Pentecost festivities and then then, then hear this message in their own language. There's an obvious message even beyond the message here. And that is that the good news that Jesus is bringing is for all people. It's not limited to one people group. It's not limited to one language group. The birth of this new age is the birth now through the Jews for the coming of the Holy Spirit. These Jews that gathered here from all these different nations to now hear the message fulfilled in their own language. And now they're going to go back into all of their communities and begin telling this message to Jew and Gentile alike. Calling them all to become part of one big family of God. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 11 verse 12. When Isaiah says, he, God, will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we have here. We have the scattered people of Israel. They gather together at Pentecost. And again, listen to how language is is stretched to be used. He scatters the people from the ends of the earth. And in, in, in we see because Luke in the book of Acts uses that same language. The passage again that Leona read in Acts chapter 2 says that people were there from every corner of the world. Now again, in a literal sense, there were not people from China there. There were not people from North America who were there. But the group that was there, as the language is being described, represents the whole world. It represents everybody from the ends of the earth. Why? Because these people now from there are going to scatter to the ends of the earth. And so Isaiah is being fulfilled in the coming of Pentecost. 
as people, symbolically, from the ends of the earth are gathered together, hear the message of the Lord in their own tongue, and then begin to spread it. You know, this is so radically different, for instance, than the, the, the faith of Islam. See, in Islam, the only text of the Quran that can be read as God's message to people is the Quran in Arabic and in the Arabic from 1400 years ago. Translations for strong Orthodox Muslims are even forbidden because God speaks in the Arabic language. And if you really want to read the Quran properly and hear God's message, you have to learn Arabic and the old Arabic. This is completely the opposite of what we have in the New Testament, in the age of the Spirit. In fact, whenever the church restricted the Bible to one language like Latin or Greek, they robbed the people of what rightly belonged to them. It's one of the things that the reformers, like Martin Luther, who I read earlier when he translated the scriptures into the German language, and what happened, same with English and others, um, were trying to live out the Pentecost message. That the scripture is to be in the language of all people, in the common language. I remember on one of my trips to Cameroon, when I asked a Wycliffe Bible translator, and, and I got some friends that are Wycliffe Bible translators, and they go into these tribal groups, and some of them don't even have a written language. And so they have to learn the language, and then once they learn the language, they try to create a written language for the people, and then they teach the people to read the written language that they've created for them, and then after they've done that, then they try to translate some of the Bible into their language, start with some of the New Testament Gospels and that, and sometimes just to get from point A, no written language, to having a New Testament in their hand that they can read is a 10, 12, 15 year process. And I told them, why don't you just go there and teach them English? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? Just go there and teach these people English and uh, then give them an English Bible. And little did I know at that time when they uh, talked to me, and, and I mean, you talked about the indigenous people earlier, how much colonialism comes with that. And the Wycliffe translator said, but it's when people get the scriptures in their own language that they realize that God has come for them. And that it's not a foreign religion. It's not just a western religion, a colonial religion being imposed upon them. This is for them. It's in their own tongues. How often have our immigrant churches struggled with the same thing? Right now, many of our Chinese churches are struggling with this. The Chinese older generation is holding on to the Chinese language as almost sacred and losing their children in the process. And hey, if we put up our hands, we Germans, we could teach them something. Because many of us Germans did the same thing with the German language and held on to it so strong we lost some of our own kids. Because it was almost like to hear from God, you have to hear it in German. And nowadays, if you you to hear from God, you gotta you gotta hear it in Chinese. Rather than say, no, no, God's always speaking in different tongues. It's the responsibility of the mature to learn new tongues, to speak to the lost, to speak to our children, our grandchildren. Even which might come shocking to some people, even language of its own nativeness changes. God does not and is not limited to the King James language. 
2 Corinthians 5.16 in the King James says this, Whenceforth, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Amen. That's the language God speaks in. And I say thank you, Lord, that you give new tongues. Because nowadays we hear God speak to us this way in that same verse. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. Ah, God speaks in our language. Because he speaks in new tongues. It's Pentecost. The work of translation is actually an ongoing work of Pentecost. And thanks be to God. In many ways, Pentecost is the great reversal of the story I started this message on. Babel. It's the great reversal of Babel, but with a twist. See, before Babel, people had one language. But because of God's sin, God multiplied their languages into many languages and scattered them. But notice what happened at Pentecost. Everybody did not come back to only having one language. God kept their multiple languages. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, he brought us together in understanding a common Savior by keeping us with all of our different languages. And in many ways, I think that's a beautiful picture of what we see in Revelation. I wonder, by some of the pictures in Revelation, if maybe in the age to come, we're not all going to be speaking one language, but we're going to keep all of our different languages and yet understand each other. Listen to what Revelation says. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count. From every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. You see them from every nation, language, tribe, tongue, and they were clothed in white robes, held palm branches in their hands. They were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. I mean, obviously, we can't make any kind of dogmatic statements about the language or multiple languages that we're going to be speaking in eternity, but we do see a picture of all the nations and languages and tribes and people coming together, and their oneness is not their language so much. Their oneness is that salvation comes from God, who sits on the throne from the Lamb. Our oneness is Christ. And because of that, since Pentecost, community has been restored. That's why we are all different, but we have community. I mean, have you ever thought about how weird it is for a bunch of people to wake up on a Sunday morning and, and, and gather in a building like this and sing songs? I mean, it's only 9 in the morning or 10 in the morning, and we're not even drunk. I mean, people do that at karaoke and the bars and the evenings and stuff like that. But why would a bunch of Christians gather together on a Sunday morning, and we're not even drunk, just to sing songs? And then to hear a message, and then to do all the different things that we do. Why? It's because of Jesus. Without Jesus, everything we're doing is kind of silly. Maybe it makes us feel a little bit good for some of us. And, but it's because of Jesus that all of this has purpose. He brings us together as a new community. That our differences no longer matter. There's no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, 
shorts or pants, celebrity or commoner. We're all one in Christ. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why the great sin of communion is division, which is what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet at the church or you meet as a church. If this is going on, then you are eating this bread and you're drinking this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner and are guilty against, uh, of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Paul's whole message there is the examination that we take before communion is an examination of our unity. Because we are now one in Christ. And Paul says, I hear there's divisions among you while you are partaking of a meal of unity. And Paul says, that's hypocrisy. Get yourselves right with each other before you enact something that symbolizes being right with one another. So we come to the table as one family. We come to the church picnic today. As one family, united in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit to love God and love one another. Just as the reformer, the Swiss reformer Zwingli said, the Lord's Supper is a joyful remembrance. And it's a public acknowledgement of all that Christ has done for us. Taking part in it, we openly proclaim that we are numbered among those who live on Christ's benefit. Communion, like what we're going to do today as a church picnic, is a joyful remembrance. The old term Eucharist means it's Thanksgiving. It's Pentecost. The harvest is ripe. Salvation is for all people. Community has been restored. So we come to a common table and we eat as one, putting aside all of our differences because we have one heavenly Father who has called us all to be brothers and sisters under his sovereign reign. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Pentecost. It is an exciting celebration of what you have done. And Lord, you have called us to be part of the harvest workers, that you, God, are calling all people from all nations to come to you, and you've called us to be the farmers and the fishermen and to go out and to spread the news of Jesus and to gather in the harvest, to set aside some of our preferences, to set aside some of our ways so that we can reach new people. Because, Lord, you gift your people with new tongues and new languages and new approaches and new ideas to constantly be winning those who yet to have heard from you. Jesus, may we submit to your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.